All right. Well, um, thank you so much for being here. You want to introduce yourself to the good people and give a little summary of why we're chatting today. Yes. Uh, my name is Dan Norton. Sorry to... <laughs> um, I have a YouTube channel, which is youtube.com slash Norton one I'm a supporter of Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism. It's a philosophy of reason, egoism, and capitalism. So that's a little nutshell of the positions that I support. And I'm sure we'll have a lot to talk about. Absolutely. Um, so to kind of preface it all, um, for the audience, this is super reductive, but um, to give a sense of kind of like, where is this conversation going? Um, and why do we feel like there's something to debate about? A lot of people compare objectivists to um, libertarianism. Obviously, I understand the distinction, even just one being a philosophical lens and one being a, uh, you know, political lens. But um, I do think there seems to be a lot of overlap, even though I recognize a lot of objectivists that I've heard from don't like being called uh, simply libertarian. Uh, but to give a sense to the audience, definitely a super, super limited government type uh, belief system and all that good stuff. So to give you kind of a feel for where I wanted the conversation to go, I'm not so interested in getting super abstract. We can go there just to kind of, so you can uh, be able to say your piece on what you believe in case anyone's interested. In. But I'm not too interested in going so abstract um, and philosophical that we're detached from real day-to-day -day issues. So you'll notice I'm going to want to keep bringing it back to, well, how does that apply to this set of issues or these uh, certain political uh, topics? So um, that's kind of a warning on that. Um, but with that being said, I'll just kind of start firing stuff. If you have any big points you want to make, just say, you know, this is unrelated, but I want to make sure I get this in. Uh, no problem at all. Uh, but initially, I watched a little bit of one of your conversations um, with someone else and heard you say that you're kind of someone who believes that taxation is wrong slash like a taxationist death person. You want to give your thoughts on that? Sure. Uh, just uh, since you mentioned libertarianism, I can just say a couple words on that mm -hmm. um, in case anyone is wants to hear about the difference between objectivism and libertarianism. So one big difference is that objectivism is an entire philosophy. It's not just a political philosophy. So it has views in metaphysics, the basic nature of reality, epistemology, the basic nature of knowledge, views in ethics, Ayn Rand is pro-egoism. And then on top of all of that, you get to her political philosophy. So she has a very robust foundation that underlies and gives rise to her views in politics it's not just a free-floating kind of system whereas a lot of libertarians they just start with the politics as a kind of ground uh groundwork right there that's their axiom uh divorced from all the underlying framework which ayn rand sets in place and i think that's one major difference it's an entire philosophy another difference is that a lot of libertarians they are also anarchists so that they don't just want a limited government. They want no state at all. And that's, that's definitely not Ayn Rand's view. So, uh, some libertarians, they, they do want a state. So there's, there's variation there, but just want to make it clear that objectivism is definitely not anti-state in the sense that it's thinks there should be no state at all. It's just anti-statism. They don't think the state should be all powerful and dictating people's lives. People should have individual rights and decide how to live their own lives. Right. So that's just uh, a little. I will that. say, I, I heard you say that point. Uh, I don't think many 
mainstream libertarians these days are anarchists. I think anarchists are anarchists, but uh, I hear what you're saying and just think most libertarians are kind of like small government except for on some things, uh, depending on the particular libertarian. But regardless of the comparison between the two, uh, from now on, I'm totally great just going forward as, you know, objectivist purely. Okay. Or at least heavily influenced by objectivism. There might be some small things where yeah, I differ, yeah. but uh, that's fine. So you had asked about um, taxation. Uh, yeah, I do think taxation is wrong. I think it's immoral. I think it's a violation of people's rights because uh, it coerces people. And I'm against coercion. Ayn Rand is against coercion. So she thinks that people should have a right to what they produce. And the government should not have a right to coercively take that money away under threat of sending you to jail if you decide you don't want to pay your taxes uh she would say that's a violation of people's property rights so yeah i am opposed to taxation as immoral and a violation of rights right so then the obvious question is there are things that uh, a government very effectively provides um I don't know where you stand on different things, but for, in my opinion, at a basic level, infrastructure, being able to have roads that are already, you know, pre-provided for you, a police department, a fire department, uh, education, all those types of things that even the most conservative people I talk to are usually like, yeah, that's, that's for the good. And that's why most people, I think, accept taxation. Um, we'll get to coercion kind of being uh antithetical to your whole view in a second but just how do you respond to the fact that okay then how do you do anything um with right. a government yeah well i think it's important to remember that for over 100 years america didn't have an income tax so it's not like um the country couldn't survive without an income tax there were some tariffs at the beginning of the country there was a little bit of taxation in the 19th century in the civil war but then that was repealed and it came back a few decades later but the country grew tremendously in the 19th century. It was an era of tremendous progress. Millions of immigrants came from Europe to this to this country. There and was 100 percent uh, mandatory taxation throughout that period. It, it wasn't until 1913 that there was an income tax amendment, the 16th Amendment. Prior to that, there was little to no taxation. And when it got started, the, you know, most people they were paying zero or only one percent. Uh, on their incomes and now you know we're up to what 30 percent or 40 percent you know depending on your bracket it, it's vastly larger so it's not like you need taxation to run a country it was it was a change that came about later in our in our country's development but um, there are voluntary ways to finance the appropriate functions of government which by the way are far fewer in in Ayn Rand's view than uh, many people take them to be so the only proper functions of government according to objectivism, are police, military, and courts. In other words, the functions that protect people from force. So you have p police to protect you from domestic criminals. You have a military to protect you from foreign invaders. And then you have a court system to peacefully settle disputes among people. But aside from that, there's nothing else for the government to do. I mean, there is a legislature to create laws, but the, the vast so uh, welfare we'll, state we'll we have today just doesn't like exist. Next point will be... Uh, even for those things, how do you pay for them? But before we go to that, uh, in the pre-income tax, there was um, taxes on commodities and stuff like that. I recognize that the government was much smaller and more limited. And so then as people wanted more uh, provided, 
you have to buy in more, you know, uh, in, in the form of taxes. So then different ways were introduced. And definitely, I agree that we probably pay more. We definitely pay more in taxes now. But um, there was definitely mandatory taxation when you're purchasing items, for example. Yeah, I don't know all the history about, you know, what excise taxes or duties or imposts there might have been. So and on I'm properties, not um, yeah. so. doubting that there were some coercive elements I'm just saying it was vastly smaller, so you don't need a vast regulatory taxation apparatus such as we have today. There is a way to finance government with uh, no taxes, in my view. So I think if the, if the founding fathers were entirely consistent, then I think they wouldn't have had taxes. It would have been entirely voluntary. But I think there was an So then break that coercion. down. What's, what's an example of voluntary? Like a real, not, oh, this is fun in fairytale land, but like, how would you fund very expensive programs such as the military um, th- purely through voluntary means without taxing people? Well, for the military, I think it's important to have a good foreign policy. And if you have a good foreign policy, then uh, which means you stand up for the rights of Americans and you defend them aggressively, defend the rights of Americans aggressively, uh, then I think military expenses aren't going to be... Um, that much. You're not going to be fighting trillion dollar wars like in Iraq to spread democracy to the world. That's not a proper function of the American government. It's not about protecting Americans' rights when you go to Vietnam or something to uh, you know save save some Vietnamese people or, or whatever from communism, something on the other side of the globe. The only proper function of the military is to protect the rights of American citizens. So if you have a properly restricted foreign policy, then it's going to be uh, much, much cheaper to fund and um, no one's going to want to fight us. I think we're just going to be so powerful. I mean, we, we already right now have the most powerful military in the world, and I think we'd be vastly more powerful if we had a stronger foreign policy. I think we're far too weak today. But we, so. we, we have such a dominant military, and nobody wants to mess with us because we spend trillions of dollars every few years. I don't think it's... Um, necessary to spend as i mean like i mentioned the iraq war is i don't know how many billions no, there's tons of ex- i totally agree with you of like um offensive completely unnecessary situations where we end up spending you know, like i think you're about to say trillions of dollars in wars uh that were not necessary but let's say you're in the build-up to world war ii that's going to be billions upon billions of dollars dumped into uh your military and if you do want a powerful military that means you have to invest in a bunch of equipment um i'm talking billions to trillions of dollars of uh weapons and training and right now we have you know more than a million people in our military being paid to be in our military and so there's no way either you uh, don't want a strong military or you have to invest a lot in a strong military. I think people will invest what's needed to defend freedom. I mean, it's in their own self-interest to defend freedom. People were willing to risk their Through, lives. like donations? Donations is one mechanism. Uh, there's. I have a video talking about voluntary ways of financing a government and a free society. Ayn Rand also has an essay about this. Uh, another idea, a lotteries, this is one way that's been done historically, which has actually been used by some places. You can have state-run lotteries. Uh, an idea that Ayn Rand discusses is uh, paying money to the government to enforce contracts. So if you want to have a contract with someone and then have the government enforce that contract, you could pay a fee to the government. So if there's a breach of that contract, then the government would step in and enforce that. 
I've heard people say the government could just uh, invest the money it gets in the stock markets, like or mutual funds, and then uh, you could just get build up interest based on the investments. So that's another kind of passive way of getting money. It's interesting because while that sounds like, oh, that's cool, you could uh, have people donate, first of all, who, if they didn't have to, especially if you're tight on money, would just contribute free... Like, we see billionaires... Um, even people who would have the freedom to give a lot of money go through everything humanly possible to keep every dime of their wealth through hiring, you know, teams of lawyers to work the tax system. The idea that you would get enough money to fund all of these, um, even while limited, still, uh, pretty expansive programs such as the military or police departments through like people donating or people buying lottery tickets. Um, and then that money going towards investment in the economy. I think that's silly, but I don't really, because it's too much of a hypothetical, don't really think us arguing is going to get us there, except for me thinking that would never happen. No one ever donate and you thinking they would. But that does bring me to like thinking of hypotheticals, um, where, for example, the government's investing their money in the stock market. The stock market cra- crashes. The whole economy collapses, as we've seen happen many times throughout history. What oftentimes, uh, every time gets us out of horrible crashes like that is the pumping of money into the economy by the government. So if that's not a part of your worldview and the, the way they're making money is in the economy, what happens when the economy collapses? I'm just taking some notes here so I can keep track. Um, I just want to mention a few points on your, on the, going back to this segment on, um, you think it's silly, you know, no one's going to pay for this. I think it's important to remember that in the American Revolution, people risked their lives. It was a volunteer army who fought against the British. So if people are willing to risk their lives for the cause of freedom, why won't they risk something much less, which is just some money? I think it's in people's interest to fight for their freedom, risk their lives as necessary, and donate money. And people have done this. And as to making donations, I mean, people give lots of money today to charity, even on top of all the taxes that they're already paying. So I think if, if there weren't so much tax, people would be more able and willing to donate money. I certainly would be. You know, if I have a, if 50% of my income is being forcibly taken away from me by the government, I'm going to be much less charitable than I otherwise would. I think it's conducive to benevolence and goodwill towards other people if you're not being coerced. If you are being coerced, I don't, I'm not as likely to want to help you out. But if you ask kindly, I will much more like be willing to help you out voluntarily. Uh, th- it's so the same thing point. as like people who say, um, in a world where there wasn't expansive government programs to help the poor, that people would just step up and help the poor. It's like, well, why hasn't that been happening then? If people are just going to happen, if not, you look at the history of the 19th century, there are things like mutual aid societies. Well, of course. Okay. <laughs> much of my family is involved in, helping people all the time. So people do it. I'm saying not anywhere close to us snapping our fingers through social security and, uh, demolishing, you know, elderly poverty and stuff like that. Uh, we can make differences, but not eliminate problems, um, through expecting people to voluntarily be charitable. I mean, I think our people are going to be much better off if you have a free society than if you coerce. I mean, when you coerce, you're, you're taking money out of productive uses. I think very few people actually need assistance from others in order to support. I think it's a tiny, tiny fraction of people who can't support themselves. You don't need masses and masses of people on the dole 
I mean, if we're talking about people with Down syndrome who can literally do nothing, or even them, they can. I've seen people with Down syndrome working at grocery cl- at grocery clerks uh, or grocery stands bagging groceries. So even them, they, there's a way for them to do something productive to support themselves. I think you know it's it's a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction, well under one percent, I think, who need others to help them out. And for that tiny percentage, there's going to be plenty of charity to help them out. So uh, if it sounds like we we're in a time. Um, that you liked more. Why were all of these problems prevalent enough to where people through our democratic process advocated to have a more expansive government? If um, previous to income taxes and stuff like that and uh, larger welfare programs, people were just magically making money, providing for themselves, giving charitably, um, why is it that there were clearly all these issues that uh, people screamed at the government through our democracy to address? I think that's a good question. Um, first of all, they weren't magically making money. <laughs> they were making money because they had freedom and opportunity. I, I should say magically, um, there weren't as many people who, sorry, I should say magically, everyone had found out a way to make money. The finding out how to I, I, is the magic part, not the making money. I don't think it's magical. It's a free society. It's a free market. If you allow people freedom, you know, opportunities mm. will develop. Figure There's speech. nothing magical about it. Um, but as to why the government eventually grew more expansive, like in, in the progressive era and the uh, New Deal era, I think uh, that's probably due to influence of German philosophy. There's a... There's a book called the. But if the problems uh, if the problems are going to be solved through a freer market, then why were the problems there in the first place? They're not going to make a government program to solve problems that's not there. Clearly, I don't, I don't people think, were. I mean, they yeah. were getting better. Things were all, the standard of living was improving, improving throughout the 19th century, and I think it would have com- con- continued to pr- improve, and it has continued to improve, but at a faster rate than it has. I think we might have flying cars by now, and much better technology than we do currently. Uh, if we had consistent, if we had stayed consistent with that 19th century model of limited government, so I think it's held us back to shift away to the more government intervention model. We've had yeah massive growth and in, um, innovation throughout the last hundred years. Not nearly as much as I think there could have been. I think there's been stagnation in some areas. I mean, there used to be son- we've gone backwards in some ways, like supersonic jets. We used to have that, and then they went away for a while. I know someone, actually, I think maybe an objectivist who's working on a company called Boom, which is bringing back supersonic Hey, I know someone who works for them. That's crazy. Okay. Um, now, in areas which are much less regulated, like the computer fields, we have seen much more progress. So, you know, we, tremendous progress in the computer industry, cell phones, internets, that sort of thing. But so, in more regulated industries, I think we're all, we are stagnating more. So this brings us to a, a perfect um, thing that always comes to my mind. When I've only, I think, debated with the libertarians primarily, but they similarly had um, the beliefs that you do. So regulation is something they always zero in on. And most of them, every time I pitch a regulation, it's like, okay, well, maybe that one's okay. Maybe that one's okay. Are you saying that genuinely, or um, like the government should do policing to protect property, uh, you know, life rights and stuff like that uh military and the third one you said court system and the court system and literally have no involvement in any other space uh in terms of regulating that's correct yeah it shouldn't be regulating because regulating is a form of coercion you're forcing someone to wear a seatbelt. road should be private that's another thing um forcing someone to get a license from the government in order to practice medicine 
forcing companies to adhere yes. to certain OSHA regulations, et cetera. There is fraud. There, there is such a thing as fraud, and that's not permitted. So if you engage in fraud, if you falsely advertise a product, like if you put on a your food manufacturer and you say this has 10 calories per serving, but it actually has 100 calories per serving, that's that's not legitimate. You can sue someone for that. You take them to court. But okay, but the okay, yeah. So let's take the FDA. Um, oh, there's so many fun ones. Let, let's let's start with the FDA. So as long as you're not saying it's 10 calories and it's really 20, let's say it's just horribly poisonous to you. The nowhere you on it does it say someone. it's not poisonous. Now, poison is a form of force. That's like coercing someone. It's a, instead of it's like sticking a gun at someone's head, you're like. I don't know. But shoving poison down someone's throat. But there's throat. no it's, regulatory body that's preventing companies from uh, cutting corners, allowing you know terrible things to be put in foods, etc. No, it's the free market and the court system. So there's competition. I mean, if you kill your customers, you're not going to do well for your business. It's not good for your business to kill your customers, first of all, or to even harm your customers. You get a bad reputation. That's not true business. at all. Look at the opioid industry. What? What? Tell me about the opioid industry. Like I don't know companies have made billions upon billions of dollars selling drugs, um, painkillers that get people hooked and often not, I mean, way too often lead to people overdosing. They're killing their customers and it's, you know, gotten them into a lot of trouble. But clearly, even whenever you understand you're going to get a really bad reputation, there's incentives there when you can make tons of money and then bounce. I don't know much about the opioid industry, but for, for one thing, just speaking more generally about drugs, I think drugs should be legalized. It's it's wrong for the government to criminalize them. As long as you're only doing harm to yourself, then uh, it should be legal, like prostitution as well, alcohol. There shouldn't be uh, you know, a prohibition for forbidding people from taking drugs that they voluntarily choose. It's not to say these are it's a good thing to do, to take drugs or alcohol, but people should have the freedom to do these things. So with opioids... Maybe there are some legitimate uses. I don't know if you're a cancer patient or whatever. Oh, there's some tons of, of legitimate uses. I'm just uh, citing that as an example of a company uh, harming its its customers, but it still happens. Like, because uh, you because you made the point that, well, no, you don't need the FDA regulating um, all of these products because companies will just self-regulate because it'll help their reputation. And I'm saying clearly that's not true because we see examples now, even when there is regulation, where they still will do harmful things to their uh, consumers. Well, we don't have a free market now, so I don't know if now is a fair example to point to for how it's free, free market doesn't work. Dan, come on. You get my point. You have to understand what I'm saying. If they're doing it now when they aren't even that free, imagine if they were completely free. I, I, I need to know more. So you're saying the... Well, you, like, you know, met, like the opioid epidemic, right? A lot of people I, I overdosing on opioids. Very little, like almost nothing about the opioid epidemic. So people, a lot of times, either because doctors got uh, encouraged, paid off, or just genuinely had some horrible, you know, medical incident happen. They need opioid, opioids to get through the pain. Uh, manufacturers of these opioids make them, uh, knowingly produce them to be very addictive and massively advertise them massively push them on doctors so that people will get hooked on them after um some sort of medical operation and that has led to thousands of people dying from opioid overdoses 
Well, what is the state of knowledge about opioids? I mean, do you know that the do people know or do they have a way to gain access to knowledge that would tell them that, you know, if I take this, there's going to be a risk of me getting hooked on this thing. So I have to weigh what are the risks? What are the b- benefits? Totally. Then, you can look up all data on all different so drugs. Why very not publicly treat available. people as adults and allow them to make these decisions and say, is it worth the risk to me? Give the potential benefits of taking this. Is it worth the possible risks, the side effects that might come with it? And then you let people decide. Because I would rather um, violate my no regulation belief and save a bunch of people's lives and just have some government regulation. Than well, it's up to them to save their own lives. How about that? If they want to. Because I think they societally know, you know, there's a can... risk I might get hooked on this and maybe bad things could happen. So maybe I should really think hard about whether I want to take some of this to begin with. Um, yeah, I think societally it's very fair to recognize that... Um, it's not reasonable to expect everyone to make the right decision all the time forever. And so putting easy guardrails in place where when people do slip up, they don't end up, end up dying. An example of that is seatbelts. I, as someone who's not always making the best decisions all the time, have driven with my seatbelt off, but because it's required, I tend to wear it on. And if I got in a car wreck, that could have caught, you know, been the thing that saved my life. So even someone who thinks of myself as intelligent, thinks of myself as being very uh, thoughtful with the decisions I make, still probably would wear seatbelts much less if it wasn't a law. And that could have cost me my life. So there's easy regulations you can put in place that save people's lives or make them better uh, that don't violate people's freedoms in any, any significant way. Well, people should be free to be irrational. I mean, it's not the government's place to force people to be rational. There's all kinds of things that are irrational. Like, I think uh, religion is irrational. Am I going to pass? Do I want a law passed that forbids people from going to church or the mosque or the synagogue? No, I think they should be able to do that. Likewise, if I think it's irrational to drive without a seatbelt, at least if you're going at a high speed. Um, but should people be forced to do that? I don't think so. I think they should be treated as adults, and then, you know, it's up to them. I don't think it's wrong to treat adults as children and then coerce them. That's imposing your your beliefs on them, and I think that's wrong. Okay, so um, I think the the underlying thing I'm realizing is for some reason you have like a deep, deep um, belief in freedom over even what I would uh, characterize as like meaningful freedom, which is your life being uh, meaningfully protected. Uh, So an example of this is building regulations like you know when i go into a high rise i'm not worried it's just going to collapse instantly because i know there's an extensive process to get permitted and all the uh regulation hoops you have to jump through to build a building like that in your world there'd be none of that so as we see in countries that have less regulations on buildings we in the united states have much less disasters where buildings fall down that's why that one in florida was such a big deal uh, a year ago or something compared to less developed countries that are less organized in that sense um, that have more buildings just randomly collapse? Well, U.S. is more free than most countries in the world, so I don't know if pointing to countries is helping your case that you know putting more regulations is... Other countries have less regulation than us on building codes, for sure. Well, what about... There's, um, there's also history of um, you know how long has the free market been able to operate in these countries have they developed but but that's uh, but like okay are you saying that as an adult i would have to research the building that i'm about to walk into to see find who built it uh research to see if they're credible to make sure that i know the building i'm about to walk in isn't going to collapse on me 
Because I like being able to walk into any building and knowing, hey, if this got built here, it had to be approved by a governmental body. And that makes me feel safe because it's uh, somewhat, you know, stringent. I don't think there's any, there's, there's no, to use the word magical, there's no magical uh, government stamp of approval that's going to protect you. I think the profit motive protects people. As I said before, it's not in your interest to kill your customers. No, but and, yeah, that's wrong. Run around there. Oh, but it is though, because sometimes no. it is. You see so many, literally the entire 2008 financial crisis was because they were making bad decisions that eventually were going to harm their customers, but it made them a lot of money in the short term. People do prior- prioritize short-term profits over long-term, you know, health of their customer or safety, whatever. Um, that's just how you, we see, we see time and time again that happens. Think about, here's an example that came to mind. Think about all the, all the companies that recall products, like if Toyota or whatever has, they find there's some defect in their brakes. Do they just ignore that? No, sometimes at huge cost to themselves, they'll re- recall the product because they don't want their customers to suffer. And, you know, it'll damage their reputation tremendously if they don't take actions like that. Or some bird goes in a toothpaste factory and it flies into the tub and you get a few, a few feathers into like millions of gallons of toothpaste and they flush the whole thing away because, and they announce it to the public, put out a press release to show how concerned they are about the safety of their customers. That's an example of a company doing good things and that doesn't make a rule though. I just showed you the exception showing that the rule is, is false. Well, there, you're, there isn't a well, rule that uh, companies just do what's best for their customers. But there's an explanation. I mean, the entire fast food would, industry would not motive. exist if that was true. No, no. F- fast food, I mean, it, I mean, if you're, uh, I don't think the fast, I mean, people know that fast food is not the healthiest kind of food you can eat, but I don't think, just like religion, I think that's unhealthy for your mind. But that doesn't mean it should be outlawed. Likewise, I think we have to treat adults as uh, adults and make leave it up to them to make responsible decisions about. Well, I'm not saying I'm not saying we eat. should ban fast food. I'm saying I can list off a bunch of examples of how companies, what their interest is, is profits. A lot of times, short term profits, and we have a, a, a massive handful of examples. Three have been listed so far of uh, companies doing things, even whole industries doing things that are not in the benefit of their consumers that harm their consumers significantly, but the cutting corners or whatever they could do to make more money is oftentimes with the way they go. Not always, because sometimes like you're, you're stating companies are interested in their long-term uh, reputation, stuff like that. But it is a characteristic of many co- uh, companies that operate within a capitalistic, capitalistic system to try to make a bunch of money in the short term and cut corners to do so, leading to their consumers uh, being harmed. And so then I'm saying... In some scenarios, I agree with you. Fast food. Is that the best health decision for you? No. Uh, do I think people should have the freedom to make it? Yeah. I mean, is there lines? I think regulating like how much sugar in the drinks and all that is, is fair. But generally, you can recognize fast food is bad for you, but um, still let it exist, as you said, with alcohol as well and all those things. Um, but when it gets to such an intense level like um, and this is just societally we choose where the line is, like building codes where I am willing to roll the dice on my decision making with um, what food I eat and the long term effects of that. I'm not willing to roll my dice on if I walk into some random building and haven't done my due diligence on who built it and get crushed. Yeah, I think it's the same principle. I think the same thing that protects you in the case of food is going to protect you in the case of buildings. I don't. I don't see a principal difference there. I mean, it's not in the interest of the food 
company to kill you. And it's also not in the interest of the building company to kill you. And you, you've mentioned uh, short-term profits a couple of times. And I think the, short, the word short-term is key there. You're not going to do on the long-term if you cut corners. The free market is what weeds those people out, those fly-by-night companies that do try to engage in bad practices and take advantage of people. They, those people get weeded out. That's what the free market is excellent at. And we, we don't have a free market today, by the way, because there is so much regulation. I think uh, actors like that would get weeded out much better if we didn't have regulatory apparatuses. I think Bernie Madoff might be a good example here. He was he was caught eventually, but I think he could have been caught a lot sooner. I think he was actually, it was someone I believe wrote, I think I heard like three times to the SEC about Bernie Madoff uh, before he was actually caught. But the SEC is so busy looking over the shoulders of people who are innocent, who there's no reason to suspect or engage in any kind of fraud or bad acting, uh, they, they don't, they're not laser focused on the criminals. So it takes longer to weed out the Madoffs, et cetera. So I think without regulations, if you restrict the government to doing exactly what it should be doing, it'll do a better job. At it. So then, because uh, every time I hear that well articulated, it's like, huh? And then a thousand examples come to mind that prove that not to be true. So uh, the EPA, for example, one of the things that companies do a lot, which is not in the benefit of society, but they do it anyways, is they dispose of their toxic waste in irresponsible ways. Um, that's how a lot of pollution is caused. So let's just use like an example that has happened, um, but uh, I might tweak the details for just for a hypothetical. So a factory is on a river, let's say, and um, they produce some product that produces toxic waste. And the easiest thing for them, quickest, costs zero dollars, is to dump all the waste in the river. This is a, a real example of um, dumping you know, toxic waste into bodies of water. Then that waste goes down the river and harms people's drinking water. There's no regula regulatory body that says that's not allowed, prevents that, but is absolutely something that companies do and would do in any world in which they're allowed to. Yeah, this is why I think property rights need to be well-defined, including rights in waterways. So right now, there's a lot of public lands. I don't know how much. I think I've heard like over 50% of land in the government, like especially if you go out in the western part of the country, is is public lands. But if we clearly define rights to things like rivers, then you can say, look, you're not allowed to uh, stick your, your waste in this river when it's going to flow right down and stream into my section of the river. But if you just have these commons where no one in particular owns the land, then you can run into these sorts of problems. So I think the solution to this is to clearly define property rights. And then if someone violates your property rights by doing some kind of physical damage to it or polluting it, then you can take them to court and sue them. But it, yeah, it wouldn't be violating. Okay. Um, that wouldn't be violating property rights because, but I get what you're saying. Um, so then someone would own the river and or at least part of the river and that's who it would have. does this not make you feel at all like oh that's a little silly genuinely like, that's silly? like oh that world sounds perfect where like i walk into a doctor's office and have no clue like i'm gonna have to interrogate slash investigate this doctor to make sure they actually know what they're talking about because there's no um you know state body that's giving them a certificate uh that recognizes they have the proper amount of knowledge no there can be certification but it doesn't have to be done by the state i mean there can be there already are things um 
I don't know if the Better Business Bureau is one of them. They could be rating agencies, computer, uh, consumer, consumer reports, things like Yelp. You can have all kinds of mechanisms where you're rating things so you don't have to become an expert in whatever field it is. You can just look for, you know, does someone have this stamp of approval from this body that's been around for decades and has acquired reputation for, uh, you know, saying someone is a legit, uh, business person in whatever field they are. Then, uh, just like with McDonald's, I mean, that's, that's a, a brand that's been around for decades. And when you see you're going to McDonald's as opposed to, you know, Joe's Crab Shack, and you have no idea who Joe is, you might have more confidence um, because the brand has been around for decades. They've sold billions of hamburgers, as they announce on their on their uh, sign out there. Um, and likewise with going to a doctor, you know, you see this guy's been to Harvard Medical School. Harvard's been around for centuries. Um, it, it, you acquire a reputation over time, so you don't have to become an expert in the field yourself, but you can look for indexes of ex- expertise such as, uh, you know, where someone's been to school, whether they've been licensed by some board. doesn't have to be a state board, but it could be some board that's acquired, acquired credibility over a long amount of time. <laughs> I mean, a great example of this is, again, the 2008 crisis. There were private rating agencies that were rating them not uh, very accurately, causing people to get um, loans that weren't at all what they should be getting a loan for. Um so you, I, I don't know. I just think, to me, this is the same vibe I get from communists when I talk with them. It's like every problem, just because it's a fun hypothetical world, would have a magical solution. When when you look at like an example of a market operating just um, in a free way, people not saying it's completely a free market, but I'm saying the free aspects of it still open the market up to massive problems that um, can only be solved through the societal body that we call government that kind of has ultimate authority over the private sector. So it's like not ultimate authority, but you get my point is able to regulate the private sector. Um, And so it's like assuming that all of these things that went bad that caused us to create regulations for them just wouldn't happen because it's a magical, sorry, not that word. It's a, fun hypothetical objectivist world is super naive to me it's the same reason like communists think that everything will just uh work even though it time and time again hasn't um it's the same vibe i I get from you yeah i I don't buy that this is just a complete fairy tale sort of system i mean i I think history bears it out the 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 more free countries that are there have been have done better than the less free countries north korea versus south korea east germany versus west germany soviet bloc versus the western bloc um united states in the 19th century i think was growing very well and that's that's the it was there was tremendous progress in that area in that era tons of inventions you had it, it was it was so horrible that millions of people from europe were immigrating here um Again, that's like the most black and white understanding. Either you're completely free or completely like, you know, oppressed and under an authoritarian state. Yes, I agree that North Korea is worse than, um, in all the, in, in the way that people are treated than all the Western countries. Um, but also going all the way in the other direction isn't necessarily the solution. Like, let's have absolutely nothing or an authoritarian government. Like that's our two options. Well, there are, there are certainly degrees, but I'm saying the more free a country is, the better it's done. And I think various examples. You know, these countries are all on spectrums. South Korea is not perfectly free, but you know, much more freer than uh, North Korea. Um, you know, it's probably not as free as the United States. 
really strange certain parts of its history. But I think if you look at the broad sweep of history, what you find is that the freer countries have done better. They've done, they've prospered more. So I don't think this is just like some detached from reality pie in the sky fairy tale that there's no historical basis for. I think historic history actually backs it up. And it shows that, you know, the, the, the more you coerce, uh, the worse things get with, you know, like countries uh, like Soviet Union or North Korea being at okay. the extreme end of that spectrum. So that, I'm so happy you said coercion. I forgot to bring that back up. Um, okay, so I agree that more um, having free societies is amazing and um, lead to the best outcomes. It's just how are we defining free? Because I, I think a lot of times the more libertarian, small government, um, and then in your case, objectivist thinking makes you go, oh, I don't like coercion. I don't like the lack of freedom. So I want, um, but you only define that as the government putting that on to people. But whenever you take away completely any, any intervention of the government, you're going to have coercion. You're going to have, um, the lack of freedom. It's just not going to be coming from the government. So for example, monopolies, why was it something very early on that, uh, people within our government established, like we should have the ability to break up monopolies because you see a situation where even in a wonderful free market, uh, companies are able to consolidate so much power that they now own that industry, own that market, and no one can compete with them. Little small businesses can't even try. Um, and they end up being able to an example of this is insulin. Jack up the price 10x on people. That's coercing people out of money that they should not be having to pay for a life-saving drug. Um, and so now you're just having a company coerce you for your money instead of the government. Now it's coercion through, um, you know, insulin, not taxation, but it's coercion nonetheless. So I think that's kind of where the disconnect is. Is You're going to have a situation if you just leave all the other powers besides the government to do what they wish where people get oppressed, people get coerced and people lose freedom. It just isn't coming from the government. Okay. So I think we might have a difference here on what coercion means because I, I think coercion necessarily requires physical force and that doesn't happen in my view when a company is simply making a trade Maybe you don't like the terms of the trade. Maybe you think it's too ex they're charging too much for whatever they're proposing to trade you. But if they're not using physical force, if they're not threatening you, then they're not coercing you. So sometimes an example that I like to use is uh, islands cases. I don't know. Maybe you've heard some of these. You know, Vosh has his uh, coconut island yeah. example, which is kind of vulgar. So I, I I won't use exactly that. But you know, if I'm on an islands. Uh, or, or both of us are on an island and um, I've got some food supplies and you don't have anything and um, you know, I say I'll give you some of my food if you do something really distasteful um, or like eat, eat, eat worms or something we can make it <laughs> less vulgar than Vosh's um, or, or if you just you know if you do jumping jacks for uh, you know a week straight and you just do nothing else. I'll give you one coconut if you do that. Am I coercing you? Uh, I don't think so. I, I think you could say I'm a, I'm a nasty person for, for making such an offer. 
but I'm not coercing you. I think I would be coercing you if I like threatened you with a stick or something. I was threatening to beat you, or if I actually did beat you, then I would be coercing you. If but if I just make you an offer, which you don't like the terms of, I would say that's not coercion. So it's just force, and that uh, like then I understand your definition of coercion, and I can um, apply that to your you know previous statements, but. That to me just makes it further obvious that this is an unrealistic and not logical worldview. And, and the reason is here, like, if I'm saying meaningful coercion or, or, uh, to me, the lack of complete freedom, um, but let's just use coercion for a second. If it's you and me on an island, you get there after I got there and I have all of the food. And then I say, like, you have to work for me indefinitely as much as i want whatever i want you to do um if you want me to feed you i'm the only person who can give you food i'm not forced i'm not you know uh threatening you with violence but you're gonna die if you don't have my food so it's maybe. like what do you mean maybe what you I mean gonna i do? could Eat fish the for sand? myself imagine i'm the only one there myself you know if i'm there myself and there's no one else i'm gonna have to do something now, maybe if you're also there and you've been there for longer and you've already found a way to support yourself, you can make it easier for me by offering me a trade. But the default is me versus nature. It's man alone versus nature. So now I can take my own risks to uh, and I have to take my own risk if I'm there all alone. But I'm not being coerced. What if I'm there just by myself? There's no one else on the islands. And I have no choice but to try to fish or find some berries or something. Am I being coerced? I think you missed... Um I'm not talking about a real situation where we're on an island. I'm saying, here's an example of your only option for food is me. But it's not. Regardless yeah. of, no, this is like when people don't, <laughs> right, this is ahead. like whenever you uh, give some hypothetical and you're like, hey, what would you do if you um, had one bullet and had to kill this person or this person? And you're like, I would shoot through both their heads. It's like, well, that's not the point of the hypothetical. Um, I'm saying, if we thought of a situation where I was the only person who could provide you food. Okay. And then the, the scenario I just played out, you have to come to me for food. That's the hypothetical. Um, then I'm not violently threatening you, threatening you, but you are coerced to do what I want you to do is in my opinion. Why? Okay. okay so you'd believe okay, that yeah. you believe that that wouldn't be coercion. Yeah. If you're just making me an offer, which might be a really nasty offer, but you're not, threatening force you're not doing anything physical like harming me with a stick then you might be a nasty person but i'd say you're not coercing me okay and i'll completely accept that that's your definition of coercion and that to me says for some reason you value um a very unique definition of freedom and a very unique de definition of not having coercion and in such a way that you want to create a world where those things are in the place you want them to be but that wouldn't at all be the best outcome for society. It would just somehow check the box that you want to check for no conceivable reason. Like if that's the definition of coercion and you don't want any, um, anything's fine unless it's that, then you're going to have a devastating society. Unless it's that. I'm I mean, saying within the coercion conversation. Sorry, go ahead. I mean, coercion is one bad thing, but it's not the only bad thing. Like I said, you might be a nasty person for making uh, an offer. Like um, I'm only going to give you some food, assuming you're the only one. If you have the food and you say, I'm only going to give you some of it, uh, if you know, eat some slugs or something, uh, you're probably a nasty person. So that's a bad thing. Coercion is also a bad thing, but it's not the only bad thing. Well, I'm not saying, yeah, no, I get what you're saying. It's not talking about morality. I'm just saying that um, 
from the perspective of what the government should and shouldn't be doing, if you're saying that, like, I would rather there be some level of, um, I think a better society is formed when you allow some level of threat of force, that's the monopoly on violence that people talk about with uh, the government, and that yields the best outcomes, it's, um, only if it's through a democratic society where you're able to check that government that has a monopoly on force. Um, but I would much rather there be some level of the threat of force in life and that level of coercion than all of the other forms of coercion that I think are coercion that don't technically fall into the threat of force. I, I mean, I think it's important to have a clear concept of force. And one thing that I'm concerned about is when you expand the the concept of coercion in the way it seems you you might want to, then a lot of things end up being called coercion that I don't think are, but then by calling them that, they become justification for, for doing things that I think are bad. So like if you think it's it's coercive for a company to charge a certain uh, price for gasoline or food or whatever, now because we call it coercion, now we can uh, coerce that company into lowering their prices or else you know uh you know their ceo is gonna have to go to jail or whatever so we're licensing uh actual coercion under the pretense that they are engaged in coercion so that's one thing i'm concerned about here when you have this expansive concept of coercion which is not clearly defined and i think which i think is very vague and there's not going to be any clear way you know what you might think is coercive maybe maybe you think it's it's coercive to charge I don't know, 50 bucks for a gallon of gasoline, but someone else thinks, oh, it's, it's already coercion if we, if someone charges $25 and somebody else thinks it's coercion if you charge $10. This is highway robbery. We're not going to let them get away with that. We have to, you know, defend ourselves. And so, you know, there's no clear way to draw the line. But if you have a clear concept of coercion, which I think Ayn Rand does, which is actual physical threats of force, then you have an objective way, a principled way, of settling these kinds of issues. Otherwise, it's just deuces wild. And I'm totally fine defining coercion as whatever, uh, as anything. So if it's, um, for the purpose of this conversation, if we just want to say it's the threat of, uh, for force, is that what you said? The threat of force, force or physical force. Um, that's fine. And that just makes it so clear, in my opinion, to everyone that clearly that has to be prevalent. Because all these other bad things, um, or has to be, yeah, has to exist. Some threat of force has to exist for a society to function. Otherwise, all these other horrible things are going to happen. And that's where kind of like, I understand why you need to define it like that. Cause then that's the thing you're trying to avoid in your ideal society. And I'm just saying when it is defined as, as that and you're trying to avoid that, you end up in a situation where, um, you're expecting of a person existing in society to do an inhuman amount of work on a daily basis to stay alive, to make sure that everything is safe in their life. When you could just outsource that to the societal body that we all um, buy into kind of, we all within the social contract buy into um, that can take care of that for you. So you can live a more free life, free of uh, the burden of having to constantly wonder if your doctor's actually certified, constantly wonder if the building is safe that you're walking into constantly, you know, as we go on. I mean, I think that's, that's a straw man position of, of what I'm advocating. I don't think there's, there is a need to uh, constantly be worried and wondering about whether the building you're in is going to fall. Just as, you know, already there's, there's no constant worry that, you know, the shoes I buy are going to, you know, the soles are going to fall off of them, even though we don't have a shoe agency like we have an F, federal and drug agency. 
Uh, I mean, there's tons of products that are not regulated by the governments. Um, and as is, as I said, there's there are, are there is the competition effects. You know, you weed out bad actors over time, and if there is even even with that going on, you you still have some bad actors trying to cut quarters. These these people can get caught and thrown in jail, fines. So, but, 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 there's, there's, what would they be get thrown in jail for? There was nothing they did wrong. They just cut corners. They're allowed to. They didn't violate yeah, any, fraud, any, fraud, any law. Fraud would be a jailable or at least fineable kind of offense. Like the thing but, about yeah. false advertising, if you say your product has 10 calories per serving and actually has 100, uh, that would be a form of fraud. Right. But, but and in my system, I'm not referring you, to you that. Could, yeah. You could be penalized for that. So right. I, I don't think there is there there is going to be this constant need to worry about all these things uh, hmm. without governments, uh, regulators coercing people. So um, to be clear, kind of the the difference in our two worldviews. I obviously don't think regulation is all good or all bad. Um, I think you could overregulate for sure. You could underregulate. You could. To have too many government programs, you could have too little government programs. Um, it's just finding that balance. And based on every real world example, um, I can think up uh, a world where you allow some um, government intervention outside of just the things you've outlined is a much safer, happier, healthier, even freer society, in my opinion, um, even if that means uh, in a sense you're coerced to pay taxes and you don't believe that. Um, and I think that's kind of the furthest we can go. Is there any other kind of main thing you wished to have said? Uh, well, just one thought on that last point um, is I would a question I would put to you or anyone who holds your sort of view is like, where do you draw the line? So you say that I think you know maybe there's such thing as overregulation, but we got to have some. Maybe some taxes are are too much, but um, some amounts is okay. But where do you draw that line? I don't think you have a principled way of drawing those sorts of lines, and um, I think that that creates a problem. There, there's no, and it can create slippery slopes as well. Like, uh, I think taxation might be a good example here. Like when it started, people are crazy. You're gonna tax us like three percent? That's crazy. You know, we we've had no taxation for for decades, or for maybe an entire person's life. And back in the 19th century, now you want to tax us one percent? And now, um, look what it's up to. Thirty percent. If you can tax one percent, why not two percent? You know, it's just one more percent. If two percent, why not three? Why not four? So where does it end? If you don't have a principled way, a principled reason, then it's just subjective and arbitrary where you draw that line and it becomes yes. a, a sliding scale. Um, it's definitely gonna be subjective as is every prescriptive statement on how our government should operate. Um, even thinking that being free is a good thing. Who, who is that objective? Well, not, not really. What we have to do is look at the great thing is because we have a good amount of history in multiple different countries, as well as looking at countries uh, in the modern day, you look at um, how effective current systems work right now. You look at uh, historically how different things have gone. And then I think that's why you set up a democracy that as much as it's annoying, operates pretty slowly so people have a say but because there's a lot of checks on power uh, you can't swing too much in one direction or another uh, that's why we see our government operate pretty slowly and in, in change uh, in the change metric but understanding that like let's say there's a spectrum between black and white a lot of that's gray right 
neither of us could tell you exactly when it becomes black to gray and then gray to white, but we know there's a black on one side and white on one end and there's a gray in the middle. So yes, of course, in the gray area, knowing exactly where that line is, is a constant journey. Um, but if the best place is in that gray area, just because it's going to be a constant push and pull of do we go more in one direction or another doesn't mean we shouldn't attempt at all to be in that space and just go to one radical end or another. Um, and as we've seen, programs that were fought for, that some people thought were good, some people thought bad, that have been implemented have made people's lives uh, materially better. And that's awesome, even though, of course, you can't know for sure, especially in a democracy, how far something will be taken. Where is the tax rate eventually going to go? It's relating to the times, the available research you have on the effectiveness of a particular thing that you're proposing, um, and different times call for different levels of response. So back when the, um, when America was under the current sets, you know, of conditions that it was in the time that we had lower taxes, maybe that was the best option. And then we move forward, times change, and we feel like, hey, uh, income inequality has gotten, you know, even larger. Let's tax the top a little bit more. So no, I don't think it's like objectively 5% is the number we need or objectively three major government programs, or it's just, what does the moment call for? What problems need uh, solving? And then how does that work within the democracy? Yeah. I don't think you have any way to decide that. I think it's, it's democracy. Arbitrary. No, democracy is mob rule. If it means unlimited majority rule, I don't think the majority has the right to vote away the rights. That, and that's why you have a, that's why you have a constitution that sets up a situation where there's checks on power and, uh, the majority can't just rule completely. That's like what the Senate so does. So if you have a majority, yeah, well, I think what, how do you decide what the majority should be able to vote on? So like, what if the majority wants to, uh, enslave representatives, representatives, so, um, they don't I mean, vote on particular issues. They vote on representatives. And if you were in a society where they did that, that would be horrible. Just like how, if you were in a society that wasn't a democracy, a dictator could decide to enslave everyone. Yes. You have to have, uh, some buy-in to the concept of the constitution that establishes that you can't violate people's rights to that extent. Well, how about taxes? Should people be, be able to violate rights by, you know, taking away 80% of your income? Should, should that be subject to majority vote? So if majority wants to take away 80% of your income, but within the creation of the, but whenever you're establishing the country that you're going to then have people buy into and the concept, uh, at least in the example of America and every, all the countries I'm aware of, um, you put within that body of work that establishes what people's rights are, that it is not a violation to tax people. It does lay out that Congress has the power, the power to tax. Yeah, that's that's part of the uh, original Constitution, uh, Article uh, Article One. I think Congress has the power to tax, and I think that's a problem. But I don't think uh, just because something is allowed by a Constitution doesn't make it right. I mean, slavery was allowed by the original Constitution, but does that legitimize it? I don't think so. I think there's and neither which, does your uh, neither does um like any philosophical lens absolutely relies on or, or belief people also buying into that philosophical belief so yes if we're in a society where people believe slavery is not a violation of people's rights whether it's a dictator who believes that and they make it happen or it's a democracy and they make it happen it's going to happen that's that's horrible there's like literally no way to prevent that through any philosophical lens well there's i mean 
there are times when you know pretty much everyone thought slavery was okay and everyone would try to enslave everyone else the the concept of individual rights i think wasn't really discovered in a major way until john locke which was the 17th century and then on the basis of his ideas the founding fathers of this country set up the united states um, but I think there is progress that's been made and uh, human understanding of what a proper sort of government is. So I think, yeah, whatever philosophic ideas are, are uh, common at the time, that's going to influence of course, the kind yeah. we of, agree on that. of governments that people um, bring into being. But I think there are objectively better and worse uh, governments. I agree. And I, I think, you know looking at history and having a certain theory of ethics we haven't talked much explicitly about ethics but i think um, that's key to understanding what a proper political system would be but i mean you you you, i I don't think it's subjective I i think it is objective as to what is a good government sort of government to have and i think one that has an objective concept of force or or coercion is is that's important to have an objective concept of force if you don't i i think that um there's something you know, fundamentally wrong with the sort of society uh you're envisioning and it's not going to be stable either so unfortunately because i don't think correct me if i'm wrong we don't have an example of the society that you hope for nor me so neither of us. Well, you know, we have something close. To the one I, I think that late nineteenth-century America is probably the closest uh, a country has ever come to the sort of system I envision. And the <laughs> yeah, the funny thing is, in the example you said that my lens <laughs> would allow for situations like slavery, and that's a perfect example of uh, the the significant oppression of black people in the time you're talking about. Um, no, I, late reveals that this is after. Oh, there's Jim Crow. No, so yeah, I said oppression. Yeah, I know past like, slavery. Yeah. yeah. Um, my point is though, because of, let's just say because of that, because clearly that's coercion. Um, the slavery or, or Jim Crow. Yeah. Yes, both. But I'm both. saying like clearly there's parts that weren't ideal. So now we're looking at, um, and mine too. Of course, America's not perfect now, and it's more regulated than it was before. Um, so. The only way that we could quote unquote objectively know which system was better is to have like defined metrics that we value. And the process of valuing certain metrics, because that's how you get to something objective is you have to be able to measure something. Um, and us deciding which things are valuable to measure is going to be a subjective process. So I might say, I want GDP to be higher. I want, um, you know, unemployment to be lower. Like what leads to those things or poverty, be poverty to be lower, uh, uh, you know, infant mortality. And you might say, well, no, those aren't the most valuable things to me. Uh, these are. So what you value is completely subjective. And that's why saying objectively, this is a better society rarely works unless it, it never works. That never happens. You're raising a big issue, and I think it's an important issue, which is you know, objectivity. You know, is there such a thing, or is it all subjective in the final analysis? Ayn Rand has quite a bit to say about that, um, especially one place is in her essay, The Objectivist Ethics. She tries to give a, uh objective theory of value in general, not just uh, what is the proper form of government, but what is an objective value. 
And um, one way she tries to solve this is by saying that the concept of value uh, depends on the concept of life. That's where the whole, like there wouldn't be values without life. If there were no living things, if there were just rocks or, you know, water, air in, in the universe and there weren't any living beings, there would be no values because values presuppose something that, uh, an entity that is capable of valuing, something that can act for the sake of things. And ro a rock is not acting for the sake of anything. It's not trying to do anything. But living things do try to do things. Namely, they try to live. <laughs> they try to stay in existence. So this one difference between living things and non-living things is living things can cease to, they can go out of existence. Um, so if, if a living organism doesn't take certain actions, if this plant doesn't uh, turn its leaves to the sun or reach its roots out to, to get some water, it's going to die. But what does a rock have to do to survive? It doesn't have to take any certain action. It just has to not be impinged by certain external things, like not get pulverized by a glacier or something. But absent external forces on it, it doesn't have to do anything positively to continue in existence, whereas living things do. We have to eat. Human beings have to um, uh, get shelter in certain circumstances, at least. Uh, food, clothing, shelter, and to, to make their lives even better, they have to do things like build technology, uh, create medicines. There, there are many things that objectively um, they must do in, if they're going to stay alive. So I think uh, by seeing values in the context of life, that could be one way to lend some objectivity to the notion of valuing. There's much more that could be said about this, but that's just a, a little hint about how but, Ayn Rand solves this issue. If that's true, and the core purpose of life is to um, stay alive generationally, so it's often to reproduce with, you know, like you know, uh, with animals and stuff. And so, it doesn't at all compute because I guess some people would say no. The way that you find objective values is to look to things that exist whether or not um, we're naming it and defining it. And an example of that is like the biological will to reproduce, okay? So instantly you can understand why that's not even accurate. I don't even know if this is the point you're trying to make, but um, kind of see how this hits you. In a society where you were really just trying to keep the society going you could do some horrible things to make that happen um if you were just trying to you know reproduce the most generate generationally exi exist for the longest term um this could include you know prioritizing the life of people who have the best genetics and all of these things and have are the most fertile um and violating other people's right what we now define as rights to to that end and that's why people throughout history have believed in horrible things like um like forced castration and stuff like that um and so some people value a super strong healthy genetically advanced not advanced but like genetically dominant society and that would lead to horrible things in my value system because i value individual rights but like that's not objective one's not objectively better in the sense of uh like which value is the correct value. It's just different value sets. 
So this is all subjective. Once we define what our values are, then you can objectively measure. So, I mean, if, so you think it's in, in the final analysis, it is all subjective, but then I, well, here's, here's a question. Like, where did you originally get the notion of good or of value? What, what gave rise, what experience of yours, if it was an experience, where did you originally get this idea of good? Because I think if, if, you can, if you can answer that question, that might be a lead to finding objectivity. Well, no, my, my answer will show that it is subjective. I mean, it's, some people believe that it comes from God, but I think you can't deny it comes from the, the environment that you're in, the uh, family that you're raised by. Like, those are where your values come but from. I, hold on. With God, I don't think that can be the original source of it because, like, let's say you're a baby. You, have, you don't understand words yet. You just... But you value things. I mean, you value your mother's milk. Let's say you, you, you have this experience that you enjoy. That but that's you're like going a, after. A, a natural thing you, uh, you, your body knows to do to stay alive. And I agree with you. Wanting to stay alive is a characteristic of life, um, in nature. Well, it doesn't even know anything about it, that it's alive yet, but it has, it has pleasure. Certain things give the, I think this actually could help provide some objectivity to the notion of values. Pleasure. So we have biologically inbuilt, a, a biologically inbuilt pleasure pain mechanism. So we come into this world uh, built in a certain way such that if you eat food, when you're hungry, it gives you pleasure, not pain. And if you uh, trip on a rock and scrape your knee, it causes pain, not pleasure. There's no choice about that. That's just the way that we are built. Some things give us pleasure and some things give us pain. And I think that can provide an objective basis. And I think that's our original. I asked but you, that's where not, you originally. That's not how you define if something's good or bad. Because well, I think people start, can get though. pleasure out where, of where do you raping somebody. Get the, get the concept of where does the original idea of good and bad come from? I think it comes from pleasure and pain. Now there are, my there point are is cases, we define we do define what's good and bad in, uh, societally, which makes it a subjective uh, conversation. Wait, we we define good and bad societally. I'm yes, sure some that groups that you're why. in think some uh, things are. At. For example, um, I've been in spaces where being gay is heavily looked down upon. It is their value system leads them to believe that is bad. And then I've been in space where it's celebrated. So clearly, groups define what is good, what is valuable, what is uh, admired, based on a bunch of subjective uh, beliefs and factors. Well, when you say groups define, I mean, human beings are, I mean, individuals, groups are made up of individuals. So... I mean, some individual in a group can say, I don't like gays, or I do like gays. And then it's up to other individuals to also make that decision. I mean, if, if someone, if my next door neighbor right, tells which is me, subjective. 
well, wait a minute. If oh, I don't see that see that that follows the the fact that there are different opinions, I don't think means that the nature of the opinion is uh, necessarily subjective. Like if I, I think I have, the, I'm of the opinion that two plus two is four, and that the Earth is round. Now, if someone else is of the opinion that two plus two is five, or that the Earth is flat, we have different opinions. But does that mean that my opinion that two plus two is four and that the Earth is round is subjective? I don't think so. I think I have objective reason. But th I, those I are you're, you're talking about measurements. Those, yes, and like things you can uh, observe in the physical world. We're talking about values that are not anything you can measure. Yes. Okay. Now, now going back to the pleasure pain thing. If I think that, you know, uh, eating food when I'm hungry gives me pleasure. And uh, now that's something I think anyone is going to experience, like, regardless of who you are. This is one reason why I think going back to the pleasure pain mechanism, which is biologically inbuilt, can be a source of objectivity. There's some things which just give you pleasure or pain, whether you want them to or not. But you know that's not factual, because if you... Uh, experience the pleasure of eating certain food too much you're gonna harm yourself sure if you eat it too much but if you eat it in the right quantity it gives you pleasure but what is, <laughs> ah, you're killing me <laughs> because you're saying that we we can derive objectivity within our um analysis of what is good and bad in in, in society like we can define what is good and bad in society and what values we should uh seek out um what values we we value through objective measurements and through an objective worldview and i'm saying that's impossible and you're saying no it's not because we have pleasure and pain which are like inherent um and you so you can derive ob objective analysis from that and i'm saying well no because you can do a lot of things that feel pleasurable that are not good for you within what we define to be as good there's a disconnect between the objective um, stuff that you're talking about and how we decide what is valuable and what is good and what is bad, what is bad in society. Well, I think there are many steps. Like you can't go straight from, you know, food gives me pleasure and scraping my knee on a rock gives me pain to we should have a laissez-faire capitalism government. <laughs> I mean, that's a huge leap. I think there are many, 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 many steps. Uh, and you think all which, those steps are objective? Uh, they can be. I mean, you can make mistakes along the way. And I think part of the process, uh, part of the challenge of being a human is is figuring out what the right steps are. And as I mentioned, like getting to the stage of understanding what individual rights are took until John Locke. And I think even he didn't get it fully in the 17th century. He thought the rights came from God. And I don't even think there is a God. So I don't think he had a fully... Uh, uh, consistent concept of rights that was entirely coherent with a rational, logical philosophy. But I think he made a lot of important steps in the right direction. And I think Ayn Rand completed a secular understanding of the theory of rights. But humans have existed for for hundreds of thousands of years, uh, making all kinds of mistakes and false starts. Um, but so, but but I think ultimately there is an objective story you can tell as to why a certain uh, system, political system, is is objectively the best, but it's not obvious. I think it does take a lot of explanation, and it's you can't just go from the the um, 
the biological facts that you know certain things give you pleasure, certain things give you pain. To uh, it immediately follows from that that capitalism of the sort I advocate, Ayn Rand advocates, is the proper system. I, Here's what happens. Just so you, just so you're aware. Them. Like, this is what's happening with your ideology. When you picture, well, that's a big jump. It's because somewhere in there that you're jumping from obje objective to subjective. So you're thinking to yourself, oh, I can kind of come up with these objective things, how we, you know, crave food and we eat it and that keeps us alive. And that's kind of like a inherent process. And, uh, and it's clearly a long jump all the way to objectivism, but you could get there. But I'm saying you can't get there without at some point saying we value this because we value it, not because there's an objective measurement. You can have an explanation for it, but what is good is up to humans' um, decision-making, subjective view on the world. So even valuing individual rights, like let's say that you were someone trying to craft a society and you thought, I want to keep the society alive. That's why I want as many people. That's going to be the best chance for it to uh, across generations last a long time. That's my goal. I value that. And so I'm going to have it set up where, you know, uh, people, uh, how do I not say this in a really gross and vile way? Like women's rights aren't respected and getting pregnant uh, over and over to make as many babies as possible. But then I would, I would say that's bad because I value individual rights. That would be violating the woman's individual right, uh, you know, to bodily autonomy. So then that's just like a subjective decision. You could think generationally a bigger population is better. I could think individual rights with smaller populations is better. There's no way you can sub uh, objectively come to a conclusion about what is good and bad in society. Once you define what you're aiming for subjectively, then you can decide which measurements you'll measure and measure those objectively. So I can say I value unemployment and we can objectively measure unemployment. Okay. I think some things are optional. So, for example, um, uh, chocolate and vanilla. I mean, you might like chocolate. I might like vanilla. I'm not going to say one is objectively better. Like, we should both like chocolate or we should both like vanilla. No, there are certain things which I think are, are properly uh, individual matters or career. You know, you might have a passion to be uh, an engineer and someone else might have a passion to be a dentist. And I'm not going to say one of those is objectively better. But I will say um, it's objectively better to eat chocolate or vanilla rather than mud if you're a human being. Also, I will say it is objectively better to be an engineer or a dentist rather than a serial killer. So I think there are certain limitations but even which then, you can say yeah, are objectively okay. I don't think we're going to get anywhere with that because then it's like, well, why... The reason why we don't like serial killers is because violating, violating the right to life of the people that the serial killer is killing. But valuing life and valuing not taking away others' lives is a subjective value. But we're not going to get anywhere with that. Um, I think we have a too big of a gap in, on this one. Uh, but I think we'll have to wrap it up there. Is there anything else you want to say? It's been a pleasure. You're fun to talk uh, to. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I appreciate the opportunity. So I don't have any, I'm sure we could go on forever with this, but yeah, feel uh, free. We'll schedule another time, um, at some point. Cause I'm sure we could do a whole nother conversation. Okay. Yeah. Um, maybe I should just, uh, drop a link in the chats if that's okay with you. And, uh, I think it's, 
Every time they try to send links. me links, it doesn't take it. But okay, well, I can just say say what it is again. My my YouTube channel. If say that's it, okay. and then when I upload this to my channel as, as a um, video, I'll put it in the description. <laughs> okay, so uh, it's youtubecom slash Norton one and I'm also on Twitter at DanNorton111, so you can follow me there. Thanks again for having me on. I, re- I appreciate it. Awesome. Have a wonderful evening. All right. Bye-bye. Bye.